All right, welcome everyone to another episode of One of Two Hundred, the independent New Zealand and international politics podcast. This is your host uh, Branko Matić. I'm here with two other co-hosts. One, Philip Manstead, as, as I've been joined uh, a number of times before. Philip, how are you going? You're uh, going fine. Very formal on the introductions today. First name, <laughs> last name. Yeah. And uh, we are also uh, very glad to, to have with us another co-host who, who's been on uh, a few times uh, before, Josephine Vargis. Uh, jo- Josephine, how are you going? I'm going good. Thank you for having me. Kia ora, everyone. All right. Well, uh, a lot to discuss uh, in the week that was in New Zealand's political landscape. I guess uh, we could start with one of the hot button issues of the week, uh, which was the, uh, the, the uh, Sam Uffendale report uh, that was finally released or not really released, as, as it turns out. Um, we were told in a classic Principal Skinner-esque move by uh, Christopher Luxon that turns out Sam Uffendale, after... Uh, being accused of, of being a bully and, and doing all manner of, of heinous stuff in his younger years. He has been cleared in this report, but, uh, you know, when the New Zealand public asked, uh, may, may we see it then? He replied, no. So what's your guys' take on uh, Christopher Luxon's refusal to, uh, to, to release this report that totally exonerates Sam Alfandel? Nothing to see here anymore, but you can't see it, you can't read it, and we're not going to talk about it anymore. I mean, even in the initial uh, stand-up that he did, uh, talking about the report, he didn't initially say that it clears Sam Uffendale. His first, his first wording was uh, the report found that events didn't occur as they were reported by the media in, um, in scare quotes, right? Um, which who knows what that means. It doesn't tell us what it did find. Um, and it doesn't tell us which parts of what was reported by the media. Also, which media? There were different reports, right? Um, that doesn't tell us which parts of those were refuted or found to have not occurred. So it was already kind of weasel words. And then Sam Uffendale stood up and spoke and said, I'm glad to have been cleared by this report, which isn't what uh, Luxon had just said uh, two seconds beforehand. Um, But then predictably, the kind of establishment media mouthpieces and pundits have said he's been cleared because you need a narrative, right? Like a clear answer to the question, um, is Uffendale a good person or a bad person? You need that by the end of the week to churn out copy. So what are you going to say, right? People at media kind of spokespeople are literally saying we have to take uh, Luxon's word for the fact that Uffendale has been cleared. Did, did you want to weigh in, Josephine? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so about this whole saga, I've just, you know, my thoughts are related to um, how this is such a common culture among, you know, pr- in privileged boarding schools. And when you listen to the stories of the likes of, say, David Cameron in the U- in the UK, and um, you know the whole pig <laughs> saga, uh, <laughs> and how abusive. So they were part of some, you know, exclusive boys club, um, uh, who were, you know, abusive towards, um, for example, the wait staff. And so it just sounds like a culture among, you know, the ultra privileged um, young uh, boys clubs in, uh, you know, in the West. Um, So whether it's in the UK or here and also thinking about like people like Boris Johnson, these ultra privileged, um, you you know, young men coming into power, thinking that, you know, they are uh, better than all of us and they can get away with the sort of behavior. And um, I'm also interested in the fact that uh, Nicola Willis hasn't seen the report. So it seems like only 
three people in the National Party have seen it. And one of them is, uh, you know, uh, the accused himself and the other two being National Party president and um, and of course, Luxon. So why has Nicola Willis been, you know, um, uh, excluded from this? Is she being protected or it's interesting in the political sense what that means. But to me, it just seems like a culture of, you know, the rich boys clubs um, in, in the West that we are seeing uh, repeated here. So it's no surprise to me that, you know, this is the sort of behavior that they engage in, in their youth. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that, that, look, a lot of people are going to uh, look at the National Party and, and Christopher Luxon's talk about going hard on, uh, on, on, on young offenders and, you know, uh, getting tough on crime and law and order. And, and they'll say there's, uh, you know, charges of hypocrisy here. To which I say, uh, yes, there absolutely is, and they should uh, make that case uh, very, very openly. But yeah, besides uh, the, the very glaring double standard that National apparently takes uh, when it's young offenders who are, you know, brown and, and poor, and when it's young offenders who are <laughs> now part of their party and MPs. The, the other thing that, that this makes me wonder is, is this a sign of the kind, kind of law and order that policies that the National wants to implement, where, you know, if there is a crime, what we'll do is uh, we'll have uh, the, the people who are implicated pay for the investigation um, and then we'll just exonerate them and no one gets to read uh, what the results of the investigation is. That sounds like that sounds like not really a great approach to, to, to get in tough on crime. But hey, look, look I'm not the uh, I'm not the demagogue uh, trying to uh, use this issue to, to score points. So who knows? The impunity of the privileged versus what you just mentioned, like, you know, how um, young Maori and Pacific Island uh, youth are treated by the law, you know, criminal justice system here. Um, you know, last week we had, um, you know, someone from Papa come, uh, you know, people against prisons, Aotearoa, talking about how uh, how the police, you know, with impunity just take the identification and photos of, uh, you know, uh, predominantly young brown um, men in our country. So the double standard, like you said, um, and also impunity of the privileged. So when we think about the uh, binary of criminality versus innocence, we might must think about what role, you know, being in the upper classes in that privileged um, club uh, means to criminality. Yeah, that's really, there's also a civil rights aspect to it, right? Because in response to that, uh, the complaints around um, unjustified photographing and recording and storage of identity photos of, as you say, almost entirely young Maori offenders, um, or, you know, purported offenders, even worse, right? It's not even based on uh, criminal yeah. records yeah. that in response to that the typical kind of tough on crime line is the kind of nothing to hide nothing to fear mentality right and if that's the case mm -hmm. here why not release the report or the terms of reference of the report that was carried out and the last i saw the victims in uffendale's case have said that they don't mind the report being released so if if nothing to hide nothing to fear is your kind of civil rights mantra as it is when poor people are targeted then I think it it shows a real kind of lack of integrity that you can't maintain that when it's you on the line, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also, I mean, that that's the exact line that we hear about, you know, just general uh, surveillance, uh, government surveillance on, on people. You know, it's the that, that's why, what was, what was John Key always saying, you know, over those years where there was a, a big scandal around uh, New Zealand's role in the Five Eyes and, 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 you know, how that was being used to scoop up all of our private information. 
well, you know, if you haven't done anything wrong, then don't worry about it. Well, you know, hey, what's what's good for the goose should be good good for the gander. Um, but you know, we'll see. We'll see if this becomes an issue or whether the media just basically forget about it and move on, which is probably the most likely thing that will happen. I think. Um, either way, not a great look for Christopher Luxon. Uh, people seem to be. Uh, you know, disappointed him a, a little bit. Although one group of people not disappointed in Chris Philoxen, uh are the country's uh, leading CEOs and executives, uh, other executives, uh, according to the Mood of the Boardroom report that was just released uh, by the New Zealand Herald, where uh, we, f- we find that, that yeah, the, the 100 leading uh, business titans in New Zealand are not particularly happy with the Labour government um, uh, for a wide variety of reasons, although they, they do love Christopher Luxon. Uh, just as a brief summary of uh, the, the findings, I mean, basically, I think Ardern uh, got something like, a, it, it's, a, it's a ranking from one to five, obviously five being the best, one being the worst. Uh, your standard kind of, um, you know, movie uh, <laughs> star, star ratings. Uh, unless you're Roger Ebert and you go for the four-star uh, spectrum, which I think is just an absolute crime and a travesty. But um, I think Ardern got a four in around 2020, and I think she was in the threes um, last year. Um, but now uh, the uh, the New Zealand business community is not not very happy. I think she slipped to like a a two point something. And in fact, is has is, is fallen way down the list uh, of, of, you know, the top cabinet members. Although who's at the very top? Uh, James Shaw, the Green Party <laughs> leader and the climate change minister. Uh, that must be very, very exciting for him, uh, especially as he as he looks at uh, potentially <laughs> vacating that spot and, and maybe looking for a a job in the in the private sector after he leaves, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm curious. What what are you what were your guys' thoughts about this uh, this move of the boardroom uh, survey? Well, I found it really interesting that you know we do surveys about the boardroom, but what about the mood at the city mission or you know um, at the homeless shelter? You know, um, those are the kind of moods that I'm you know more keen to understand. Anyway, um, it's interesting to see this. Um, you know, that James Shaw has come first. And it's also very interesting for me to see that um, despite her efforts to um, appease the boardroom, uh, Jacinda Ardern's still not doing well. I mean, she ran in in, in 2020, um, you know, one of her main, you know, the 2020 campaign was something of a nothing campaign um, without much, you know, massive policy proposals, unlike the 2017 one. But one thing she she was clear about, for example, was to not uh, implement a wealth tax. And that was one of the rallying cries of the 2020 Labour, um, you know, um, campaign. Uh, no wealth tax, um, you know, great uh, monetary and fiscal policies for, uh, you know, the property investors over the last three years, uh, leading to an unprecedented um, increase in, in property prices. So people who own assets have done really well. And despite all these efforts to appease the wealthy and those who own, you know, our businesses, our resources, our property, um, she's still not doing well. It just shows to me that the labor should just focus on their their core support base, which is, you know, historically been the working class movement. Um, I I wish that um, Labour did focus on that instead of trying to appease and failing 
uh, <laughs> in uh, appeasing the boredom. But then, you know, like you said, she was doing really well. It's not like, um, you know, the boardroom didn't like her in the past. They did. So it's interesting to see that it's, uh, you know, it's it's not always been the case that the boardroom hated her. You know, she's tried successfully in the past and this, this time it's different. Um, the other thing is about, of course, James Shaw coming up at the top, even beating Christopher Luxon, is it? <laughs> so that's Exciting. quite interesting. The, yeah, the Green Party yeah. must be absolutely uh, ju just celebrating uh, over this result. I'm sure that the, the <laughs> MPs and members are just um, just riotous uh, at hearing this news. But to me, it's also part and parcel of what we are seeing as green politics at the moment. I'm looking at, um, say, for example, uh, who they are supporting here in well in the Wellington mayoral race, um, Tori Fano. Uh, she's connected to corporate lobbyists. And so um, it seems to be a theme in the Green Party right now that they are, you know, pro-corporations. And I mean, trying to put their feet in two boats is not going to work. So I mean, at least James Shaw's, I feel he's honest about his politics. And I think he is the true representation of where Greens are standing at the moment. And everyone, you know, else who's pretending that they're not, uh, you know, a neoliberal corporatist po po party, they're the ones who are trying to project a wrong image. Um, you know, the Green Party, the Environment Minister Ministry's um, environmental plan policy plan that came out earlier this year, you know, it was a shock to environmentalists in New Zealand. So who influenced this policy? It seemed like the corporate boardrooms did. And, you know, the most polluting agricultural sector in New Zealand also, you know, didn't get um, much of a slap on the wrist through those policies. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it just represents where the Green Party is standing at the moment. And we can't say that, you know, if the boardroom doesn't like you, you can't say that the, you're doing good things for the working class. But you can say that if the boardroom likes you, then it's, a, a, you know, a testimony to the fact that you are working in the interests of the boardroom. So that's one thing that we can, uh, you know, conclude from this is that uh, James Shaw's, um, you know, politics are acceptable to the boardroom and that's where the green party stands unfortunately in 2022 yeah yeah i mean look at huaka kanoa right the entire process of self-managed um climate policy by big agriculture for big agriculture um it's the kind of the co-option of nothing about us without a rhetoric that uh james shaw had at the time is pretty kind of indicative of his approach to these these things right he's very much about he, he spends more time in boardrooms than probably Jacinda Ardern does. Um, and, you know, there's the, I guess to, to zoom out, there's the the question of the the value of having a, a survey of the boardroom, a mood of the boardroom that's like self-selected. There's a lot of methodological issues, um, self-reported by people who have time to do it and who have connections are being, and are being asked by Herald journalists. <laughs> so it's a certain spectrum of big business people. Um, I don't think it's, representative of business in general in New Zealand you know most most people in executive positions quote unquote in New Zealand's businesses are in tiny businesses where there, there are barely any uh, members of you know employees of that business um, but it, as I think you're right to say as an indictment of people who are deliberately trying to work with those big business scions and kind of uh, I guess our, our New Zealand version of plutocrats, I suppose, our, our local kind of corporate oligarchs. 
um, there's definitely something there that if you're scoring highly, it's because you've been trying. And yeah, as you say, it's a, it's a pretty kind of predictable, but sad kind of decline in the, the future of Ardern as a kind of third way successful politician that even after, you know, the TPPA free trade deals that she's like worked so hard to sell, uh, ruling out wealth, wealth taxes and CGT, a slew of these things, uh, rolling back any kind of pretense at transformational policy agendas, ruling out, you know, the WIAG report, all these, all these things over time, every year, there's been a new kind of one of the thousand cuts has come every year, right? For the Labour's quote unquote transformational agenda. Kiwi Build was kind of corporate in its inception that it's only been maintained and the kind of public housing aspect of that has been whittled away over time. And we've seen, you know, they're paying a billion dollars a year to motel owners, essentially subsidizing um, private industry instead of public housing. All these things that have just been building and building and building and still, still they don't like it because they see that there's an, there's an opposition now that they can vote for, which we've always said, right? This, this thing is a limited time resource. You can't just wait out your opponents. Like the, the boardroom people who were being contacted, they didn't like Simon Bridges or Judith Collins, not because of their policy agenda, but because they saw that they wouldn't win. It wasn't in their best interest to make that political connection. It's a relational strategy that they have, right? So as soon as someone comes in who they say, oh, they might win, it almost doesn't matter what Christopher Luxon says, as long as they can see that he's neoliberal, he's a better alternative to Jacinda for them because he'll be more subservient, even than Jacinda has been. So that's all they need, a pliant and plausible opposition. And that's what they've got. So of course they were going to do this. We've said this all along. Yeah, that, that's precisely right. I mean, the the, the most ardent uh, class reductionists in, in the country, if not the world, are business leaders. Uh, they, they vote ruthlessly uh on class interest um and that's that's as any capitalist will tell you that is uh that's how, that's how the system works that's how you uh run a business you're meant to be all consumed by making more money uh so of course that whoever's going to give you a better deal on that uh you're gonna you're gonna go for that um to your point uh josephine i mean it was amusing to me the 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 way that this was framed um this this survey by Fran O'Sullivan, as she reported the results and Ardern's kind of tumbling down the, the business rankings. Um, uh, she says, you know, oh, she, she uh, this is important for the Labour government because it faces a general election in 2023 and 24% of CEOs regarded performance as prime minister as not impressive. I mean, I'm not sure if Fran O'Sullivan is aware of this, but the way that we elect leaders in this country is not that we send uh questionnaires to 100 ceos and have them pick the prime minister that kind of there's there's you know five million people uh on these two islands that that kind of uh decide that so sure i mean it, it, in the sense that uh it means that maybe they'll stir up more trouble for Arden. that that could be the case but at the end of the day i mean Arden's going to focus a lot more on pleasing yeah you know the millions and millions of, of actually voting uh people who aren't uh, business tycoons um, and who are not having a good time for very different reasons than what these people are complaining about. Um, one of the things I, I that is very striking about the survey, and it is every single time you read uh, any of the kind of complaints by uh, business people, whether it's in New Zealand or anywhere else, is that it's completely incoherent. Um, the things that they're unhappy with her about, they, they think she hasn't done a good job on climate change. They think she hasn't done a good job on child poverty. 
um, that they think she hasn't done a good job on, on, on building New Zealand's infrastructure. All that's totally true. Uh, they're, they're correct about that. Um, but at the same time, they oppose everything that would be done to actually solve those things. The, the, you know, the, yeah. the report has quotes of people saying, you know, oh, we don't want this social unemployment um, insurance scheme because that'll actually just make people lazy and, and, and uh, you know, less likely to work. Uh, they are very unhappy with the government's supposed fiscal irresponsibility, which as we have harped on in this podcast a billion times, uh, doesn't actually exist. It's a very uh, 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 fiscally stringent government that's that's uh, kind of kind of uh, taken the National Party's uh, uh, strategy, spending strategy. I mean, uh, but the fact is, I mean, this shows you that just because you happen to run a business, just because you happen to have made a lot of money and that you're sitting on the top of a, some sort of uh, corporate empire, doesn't actually mean that you know that much about anything beyond that particular subject. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> climate change is a good one. They, they, they hit her for not doing anything on climate change. But of course, what has been one of the biggest impediments to, to having any sort of uh, uh, rational and effective climate policy uh, in this country? It, it's, it's the business lobby that, yeah. that hits every new regulation, doesn't want new taxes, doesn't want any government spending, but somehow wants all this new investment and all this other stuff. Um, so, you know, I think my main takeaway from this is uh, mostly this is a response to just deteriorating economic conditions. When things are kind of seem to be going generally well, these, these guys, as well as, you know, even just ordinary members of the public are generally going to say the leader's doing a good job. I like this. I like that. And then when uh, when things go badly, you know, they'll they'll say they're not doing a good job. Um, and and you know, Ardern deserves a lot of the blame for that. But I think we shouldn't put too much stake into the results of this particular survey. The, 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 they're mostly incoherent, and the stuff that they want and they think is is going to be a solution to all this stuff is just the same thing as always. They want to they want minimum wage uh, basically <laughs> repealed. They want uh, uh, tax relief. They want regular regulations to be to be cut. Yada, yada, yada. It's the same stuff again and again and again. Um, and, you know, that's the only thing that's going to make them happy. So I, I don't think we should care that much about what people who simultaneously want tons more public investment while also wanting a super fiscally uh, stringent government. <laughs> yeah. And just to bring uh, one more point to this, it's just the interests of the boardroom and the property, you know, the owners of businesses, owners of property. I mean, the top 10% of New Zealand own over 60%. Of the wealth in this country and the bottom 50 percent which is you know where most of us even a lot of us are uh, own only two percent of the wealth and the interests of this top 10 percent are actually contradictory to those of um, you know the bottom 50 percent so um really we mustn't be listening to them if we want to improve our society we must look at how to improve the situation the material conditions of the bottom 50%. That's where our focus should be. So yeah, we shouldn't give too much of time uh, <laughs> for the opinions and views of the people who are actively working against our interests. Yeah, exactly. It's it's actively anti-democratic to privilege those this tiny minority of a tiny minority of the most wealthy, powerful people in our country um, over, as you were saying before, what about a mood of the uh, unemployment line? What about a mood of the city mission? What about a, a mood of the people in the bottom 50%, half of our nation who, you know, at 
a much higher proportion don't actually vote, don't have their voices heard through existing democratic means, that would be a much more valuable uh, mood to take the pulse of. These people yeah. uh, already represented in polls and have, have a kind of access to media and an access to PR agencies that that second half of society don't. So it's, yeah, it's, it's further entrenching the kind of inequality that we see in access to information and having their, their voice heard to use, I guess, a liberal kind of um, conception of that. Um, yeah, but that, it's interesting, as you said, Branko, like to think about what it would take to make these people happy. Like they've had billions and billions of dollars poured into their pockets through the uh, COVID scheme to keep their employees yeah. on. Uh, they say they want infrastructure, but every time it's proposed as a public scheme, they go, oh, no, no, we can't afford it. We need a uh, ruthlessly austere governments because really what they want is a PPP scheme, which is more billions of dollars being put into their pockets, right? <laughs> they, they just want handouts. They just want handouts, right? And if they're not getting enough handouts, they'll have a little cry and vote people fewer stars on their, um, on their EBIT rating or whatever, right? So who cares, right? It's, it's a few powerful people and you shouldn't, you shouldn't have their endorsement. It's, it's an indictment if you do. So yeah, yeah bad job, James Shaw. This is what you get for doing Huaka Kanoa. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, one thing I would add, one place uh, that I think they, they uh, do have an actual legitimate point, not that we needed the survey to, to know this, is uh, complaining about labor shortages, which are caused by uh, the immigration restrictions over COVID. And when I say the immigration restrictions, I don't mean the idea that they that, that was the wrong policy, but the way it was done, the way it was uh there was an open door if you were someone who was wealthy uh, or, or powerful or famous. Um, but if you were a, a working class person, if you were a working class immigrant, a nurse, uh, someone who wanted to work in the aged care sector, or, or you know, even even you know what we what we kind of unfortunately call high skilled workers, even 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 those parts of the working class, those people were put through incredible difficulties to get into the country and actually even driven out of the country um, by by a policy of de facto uh, family separation. Um, and so I think uh, on that on that element, I think uh, they, they do have a, a point. Um, and I think, you know, that it's a it's a good sign of how, you know, the, the Labour governments, again, it's it's um, bending over to kind of please the 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 richest and most powerful and to not really give that much of a damn about um you know people at the bottom uh has kind of come back to bite it because this is now one of their biggest complaints that the fact that they kind of had this two two-tier system of, of immigration has uh and, and now you know these business uh, owners are pissed at it uh, because they can't hire the workers or they don't have enough foot workers in certain fields and so on and so forth Okay, and then I guess the other major uh, thing that's been happening this this uh, week is the Prime Minister went to the UN and gave a speech, um, a speech that I actually thought was personally was was pretty good. Uh, although I have a number of of criticisms of it, of course. Um, but uh, you know, just to, to give a brief summary, um, Ardern. I think that the kind of the big maybe headline thing, at least for me reading it, was Ardern was calling for a reform of the uh, of the UN, uh, which people have talked about that for decades because the UN, the way it's set up, is completely ridiculous and unfair and undemocratic. Um, but uh, there seems to be an increasing volume of, of calls. Uh, you know, the US has said it, uh, Russia's even said it, a group of African countries recently got together and they they said, you know, we need to, to have more of an African voice in the UN. So, you know, whether that's going to amount to anything, I don't know, but I think that's a significant part. Another significant part of the speech was 
Ardern's call to, to ban nuclear weapons, which, you know, heightened by the, the recent news out of Ukraine with uh, Vladimir Putin uh, mobilizing supposedly 300,000 more troops for his war, uh, maybe more. We'll, we'll see. Um, and at the same time, threatening to use uh, nukes and, and probably some of the sharpest and most explicit language he's used to do that so far, which is uh, very scary. Um, those are the two big ones. Uh, I have my, th- my own thoughts about, about some of these issues, but I, I'm, I'm, I want to hear what you guys, uh, what your reaction was to uh, the speech. Those were, those were the things that kind of made the headlines, but I thought just quickly, there were a couple of smaller kind of points that came up during that speech that I'd like to kind of skim over. Um, the first one was the uh, climate change stuff. So she drew an explicit comparison between a multilateral kind of cooperative approach to addressing COVID and this, a similar kind of thing for climate change. And lots of people have made this comparison. We've made this comparison in the past um, in that, as she said, it does show a kind of fundamental human connectedness between nations and individual nation states aren't equipped to solve these uh, global issues about which she's correct. But I would say the COVID response has shown what a disaster the piecemeal kind of approach that currently exists is. I don't think this is a success story. Like this is what's happening in climate change already. And that's why it's such a disaster is that there's very little cooperation between nations. She said, we're doing our bit towards uh, the Paris agreement, which we're blatantly not. She said the she said New Zealand has introduced a law to limit climate change warming to 1.5 degrees, which we haven't. Uh, the government lawyers themselves say that that's an aspirational target, not a limitation. Um, so there's a lot of kind of double speak in the way that she talks about environmental issues on the on the global stage and continues John Key's kind of uh, clean green New Zealand as a brand, not a policy uh, trajectory, I suppose, from from years in the past, and then also. She started talking about disinformation near the end. I don't know if you picked up on this, um, but she... I, I aggressively was, ignored it, but yeah. <laughs> uh, smart. Because she was essentially calling on other countries to join the kind of Christchurch call thing that she's her and Trudeau have been kind of pushing recently. Uh, and here's a, here's a line that sort of summed up her approach to treating uh, disinformation essentially as violence. Um, at the end, she said... How do you successfully end a war if people are led to believe the reason for its existence is not only legal, but noble? How do you tackle climate change if people do not believe it exists? How do you ensure the human rights of others are upheld when they're subjected to hateful and dangerous rhetoric and ideology? And I mean, that's a good point that we could equally point at her and say those things have always been the case and have been disproportionately pushed by establishment media, political business institutions, Fixing that isn't on the agenda. That's not what she's talking about, right? She's talking about individual atomized kind of cases of stochastic violence and extremist hate. She's not interested in talking about like the mainstream crusade of of disinformation actors aren't aren't talking about decades of information from oil, cigarette, pharma companies covering up studies. They're not talking about the way that funding uh, media is disproportionately, you know, from a certain clique of people issues with war reporters being embedded with partisan troops rather than independent that have been the case forever, right? The entire propaganda model, um, Chomsky kind of propaganda model of, of media is left out of this analysis, which I think fundamentally undercuts the idea of treating the, the Christchurch call kind of conception of media and information is very 
um, utopian, I guess, very idealized. It's not material at all in its um, analysis of how these things work. There's the kind of emphasis bias uh, in reporting towards positions that their future future employers will take more seriously, which we see in New Zealand all the time. If you're a journalist in New Zealand, it pays a lot more to get into PR after five years, 10 years. So to do that, your record has to match the kind of things that are going to work in the big corporates you're going to move on to. Um, this, yeah, this entire propaganda model that I think they're ignoring and sweeping under the rug in favor of the much smaller issue of, you know, extremist, extremism in a very limited sense that they're happy to push. Mm. I mean, I, let me just, just to add to on, on this specific topic of misinformation, because I find this so just grating and annoying because it's, it's such a, it has nothing to do with, with anything. I mean, the, the online misinformation is not what's causing the, the, the right-wing radicalism uh, that we're dealing with, but also just the general uh, uh, deterioration of political conditions in, in New Zealand and everywhere else. Uh, there, was a, there was actually a couple of reports um, in the US, basically, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, both reporting about the fact that um, the Pentagon is reviewing its own propaganda operations, um, which, of course, you know, we always hear about the Russian stuff, the Chinese stuff. Um, of course, the US does it as well. They have, you know, trolls and, and bots that they have to, to seed um, uh, particular messages, particular narratives that are favorable to, to its own foreign policy. Uh, interestingly, the only time I ever see reporters point out how minimal and unimportant this actually is and how ineffective it is, is when they're talking about the US uh, version of this, which in both of these reports, if you look them up, they're, you know, they're very recent. Um, they both take care to mention, oh, you know, but look, these, these uh, messages have barely any uh, engagement and, you know, they didn't really have any, any effect, which I think is completely true. It's ridiculous, you know, the idea that Iranians right now are protesting because of um, a bunch of tweets from Pentagon accounts is absolutely idiotic. Um, and it's, it's just as idiotic uh, to believe, as the New York Times reported recently, um, that, uh, well, well, tried to report, tried to allege that the reason there was a split um, in uh, the Women's March movement, uh, which had happened over basically Palestinian rights and the issue of, of Israel, um, that that had actually happened because of um, some Russian bots. Um, and that the, the, the Palestinian uh, activists who had been uh, targeted by all these vicious attacks, it was actually just because of Russia. Absolutely idiotic. Of course, they weren't mentioned in stories like that, that, you know, online patrol farms and, and bots and the like uh, didn't have that much to do with it. Um, because it's, that's, a, that's a bad country, that's an adversary, so we have to play up, um, uh, you know, in, in this case, how, how threatening it is. The, the last thing I would mention as well, I mean... This is the other other absurdity of this. Who was this all started because of the the, the shooting in Christchurch? Who was the Christchurch shooter inspired by? Partly by fascists in Ukraine, the the Azov regiment. He was wearing the the black sun symbol that so many soldiers we have seen wear over there. And meanwhile, who who was uh, who was promoting Azov and, and other far right militaries um, and militias? Uh, over there, it's not, you know, Twitter, although I'm sure you'll, you'll find a bunch of people on Twitter doing that. Um, I see it overwhelmingly in, in mainstream press outlets saying, oh, Azov are not, they're, they're no longer neo-Nazis. They have no connection to, to, to the wider Azov movement. That's a separate thing. Oh, they're not radicals at all. You know, meanwhile, they just, just toured the United States. Uh, a bunch of Azov figures met with members of Congress. Um, you know, I mean, so 
the the positive messages about about those particular uh, white supremacist extremists they're not coming through social media they're coming through the exact uh, areas of public discourse that um, that are calling for this kind of censorship of online spaces it's the online spaces that are pushing back. So very absurd. Anyway, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add those couple of points to this point about misinformation. No, I think those are important points. I, I just wanted to um, talk about a few things there. Of course, the Christchurch, um, you know, mosque attacks, the terrorist attack that happened in Christchurch when, you know, I was in Christchurch. There's so many things that we can connect here. Like you mentioned how, you know, he had connections with as of um, who are being funded by the United States, which is, you, you know, um, uh, New Zealand's ally um, in this conflict. So um, that's one. But to me also, one of the most, the major sources of disinformation is for in New Zealand and in across the world in most situations is actually the government themselves. Um, if I think about, um, see, what led to um, the March 15 terrorist attack, I would, I would include in it you know, the colonial um, knowledge system that exists around us, not only in Australia where he's from and not only from, you know, Europe where this is also, you know, the existing, what do you call it, over of information around you or the uh, existing atmosphere of knowledge that we are embedded in, right? It's colonial in nature. And that, that leads to the idea that, you know, for example, New Zealand is a white nation. Um, and this is not coming only from Azov Battalion, but it also came from, you know, uh, the, the centers of power in New Zealand. So, for example, when, when Jacinda Ardern said, this is not who we are, and for a lot of us, it didn't make sense because actually, this is the kind of narrative that exists around us to a great extent. The, uh, the struggles of Maori have not been really taught in the school syllabus over here. Um, I'm slowly, slowly, I, I, and it's, it's really hard for me to find information on it. So despite living in New Zealand for eight years, I'm on, I've only got so much information about what the struggles were like, you know, how, what kind of suppression happened here, and in what name was it happening, right? Um, that goes to the foundations of the sorts of white supremacist thinking that there is a superior civilization um, and the other people are inferior or primitive or uncivilized, right? The savages. So uh, a lot of the times, these sorts of knowledge that form the basis of white supremacy, they actually uh, didn't just come from Azov or, you know, extreme right wing um, factions here and there, they actually, the source of it is colonialism. And in fact, the British Empire. And this is the other thing, which is interesting for me, where, you know, on the one hand, Jacinda Ardern and leaders like her claim to support um, the rights of, you know, racially oppressed people, but at the same time has no qualms to just to glorify an institution which was a symbol of white supremacy globally. So, you know, her, uh, the official response to the Queen's passing, a little bit of, you know, a nuance over there on what this this institution could mean to people who suffered in its name, uh, who are actually part of the bicultural framework in our nation would have been good, but there was none of that in the media. And there was none of that from the official response. In my view, it was really, um, there was no acknowledgement uh, that the, this is actually this, one of the sources of white supremacy and racism uh, globally. Um, 
so disinformation for me that's a really you know abstract concept isn't it what which disinformation are we talking about right now with New Zealand's uh, position on Ukraine. I think the New Zealand position on Ukraine is based not on a robust understanding of the situation uh, in Ukraine. Again, you know, uh, like I mentioned in that Ukraine, uh, Ukraine podcast, I will reiterate here that we must acknowledge what was the role of NATO in instigating this crisis. What does the United States have to do in, in Ukraine? Right. Um, and why have they been involved there for so many years? And why have they broken their promises, which were made in the 1990s to Soviet Union, not to move this aggressive, aggressive military alliance, which was formed with one of the main things was to counter Russia. So it's an it's a you know, why? Why did they leave all these civilians in Ukraine? And now with the mobilization, so many common people in Russia, um, into the face of violence and war instead of thinking of averting it and promoting peace. So United States and NATO are not innocent actors in this crisis. We must always remember that. And it's just um, appalling to see also uh, how Jacinda Ardern, you know, she mentions the illegality of uh, the Ukraine war uh, and putting Russia in the, you know, in the, in the seat of the culprit. But she doesn't mention that a vast majority of the illegal wars that have happened since World War II uh, have been instigated by her allies in, in NATO. I mean, how many sanctions, coups, CIA coups that actually removed some of the greatest anti-colonial leaders in Africa, for example. We're thinking about Thomas Sankara, uh, Patrice Lubumba. We're talking about the likes of Kwame Nkrumah, who were removed from power. Um, you know, by the meddling into our sovereignty by New Zealand's allies um, in NATO. So um, why is only legality a problem when someone outside the realm of this, you know, Western colonial powers uh, is committing that? So we must think about international law in a more fair and balanced way. And it's also interesting to know that this narrative that has become, you know, the default knowledge in New Zealand, it's actually just one version of this, uh, the conflict. Um, so many, over half of uh, African nations, you know, abstained uh, or, you know, did not vote in favor of denouncing Russia as the sole, um, sole country to blame uh, at the, U you know, for this crisis at the UN. So what could be the reasons why so many you know, post-colonial nations have a different perspective on this. And those perspectives should be there in the media. They should be discussed in the media. So, yeah, so what is this disinformation? And uh, why is, you know, international law only coming up at this moment and not with Iraq and with Syria? Of course, it, it was mentioned uh, by many actors, but um, not to the level that it is being discussed today. Um, Syria, Somalia, just this, in September, 12 civilians di died in U.S. drones, you know, attacks in Somalia. Where is the media discussion about this? What about the legality of that? So, and Libya, right? So when our countries are, you know, bombed to oblivion, nobody seems to be raising these issues of illegality and international law. And Jacinda Ardern needs to take a hard look at her allies 
and and see which ones of these are actually following international law so um yeah it's it's a double standard and again to me it is a reproduction of the colonial status quo where you know the aggressors the biggest aggressors in terms of neo colonial violence are not seen as um doing war crimes or are not seen as being you know violators of international law and yeah this is an example of how the colonial narrative continues to this day i would say that nato is one of the biggest aggressors um of and the biggest violators of you know international law after world war 2 yeah i mean the the entire construct of international law is a, is a difficult one to be consistent on right um in in terms of historically there's a, and i would add yemen and ethiopia to your list of um conflicts recently that we haven't heard enough about and haven't been presented as a a serious kind of challenge to international power struggles um international balance of power i should say um yeah but it, it's that old kind of um conservative conception of there are those who the law binds but does not protect and there are those who the law protects but does not bind right so when the us commits yeah. these laws we can have kind of soft denunciations that are like oh well they shouldn't be doing that um but when russia invades a country that's that's a sort of fundamental question about the validity of the united nations um and we you know we have biden having making speeches about how the united states the united states supports uh limits on you know attacking people shouldn't be attacking each other uh this this bizarre kind of um suddenly pro international law biden for the first time in his 600 year long career <laughs> he's against a war okay biden um fair enough but yeah it does show a real kind of lack of lack of integrity again right it sort of connects to the uffendale conversation in that um there are those who can just act with impunity and those who can't and that again yeah. it's obviously not to say that a war is a good thing a war is not a good thing but what's the way that you get out of it what's the way that you end this conflict and as we've previously talked about there's concerningly uh well backed up kind of evidence that seems to be only increasing over time that the UK and the US are not in favor of ending this war they're doing yeah. all they can to stop it from ending right so if you're if you're pro the end of the war if you're pro peace why would you be against uh, a process of of uh discussion discourse between UK and Ukraine and Russia that's what's going to get there there's not going to be a magical uh a magical thinking kind of end of end of history moment in Ukraine yeah i mean this is this is the thing that i took most issue with the speech which you know i'm all for the idea of stepping back from the brink um when it comes to nuclear war uh totally correct um but that that is the most important issue is to to a end the war and then b stop us from escalating to something really really horrible which new zealand would also suffer from even if we're not caught in the crossfire i mean a nuclear winter the effects of that on on the country would be um absolutely devastating i mean you know i don't even want to go into it uh so you know we have an interest in in, in doing that and and the thing is obviously what russia's doing is illegal it's wrong it's immoral heinous you know you could you could go down the list there's there's so many words you could apply to it but that pointing that out is not going to stop the war um as as you say philip the the thing that has to be done is diplomacy and 
you know, I think part of uh, being a responsible actor on the global stage and part of having the kind of role that New Zealand does uh, have, or at least that, that we think, we like to think that we have on the, on the global stage, sometimes involves, you know, having some, some um, tough words for our allies as much as we have for the countries we consider our adversaries. Um, and, you know, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I can't remember a single time that Jacinda Ardern has, has publicly called for uh, peace talks, has, has publicly pushed the United States, yeah. which, which basically has had no diplomatic contact uh, with Russia over the course of this war, to actually enter into negotiations, um, to, to try and have a ceasefire to the war, to try and find some sort of settlement that each party can live with. She has not done that. And, and that stands in marked contrast to a lot of other countries. Turkey has repeatedly uh, facilitated peace talks between the two and, and, and Erdogan, um, who by no, means is no, by no means a liberal, um, has repeatedly said that there has to be a diplomatic settlement to the war. Uh, and in fact, it was Turkey that, that helped to um, uh, uh, produce what was, what was apparently a successful uh, agreement in, in March and early April until Boris Johnson and, and, the, and the Bucha massacre uh, basically scuttled it. So, you know, Turkey's, Turkey's been there. Um, you have African countries who have been saying this the entire time. There's actually an African diplomat, quote in Reuters, a week or two ago, you know, who told them, we find this absolutely bizarre, this attitude in the Western world, that, that the war just has to keep going and going. It's, it's absolutely insane. Um, you know, you've had Lula, uh, the left-wing, hopefully soon to be president of Brazil and former president of Brazil. He has also, you know, similar to what you were saying, Josephine, he's pointed out the, the role in, in NATO's uh, policies and helping to spark the war. Um, he hasn't, he hasn't, he's also criticized Russia. You can do both of those things. Very, very easy to do. Um, and he's also said, you know, that he, there has to be talks. The Pope has said it. You know, the Pope, who is not only the Pope, but he's, you know, a, a, a fairly, you know, he's an Argentinian, you know, another person from the global South. Um, you, you've had calls like this from countries that are not part of the West, um, basically from the very beginning. It's a very, very, th this attitude that has uh, taken hold in the United States, and, and I see it a little bit in New Zealand, that, you know, what we have to do is just sort of just keep pushing for victory, no matter how many people die, no matter how dangerous this gets, no matter how much destruction happens. That is a global outlier. And uh, the people who want the war to go on and on um, came up with a very clever way to, to basically demean these uh, calls for diplomacy. They called it West-splaining. This idea that, oh, it's, it's people of the West who are the ones calling for peace settlement and diplomacy, uh, and they're talking down to Eastern Europeans who really know better. In reality, West-splaining is the exact opposite. It's, it's the West overwhelmingly that is saying, we don't want diplomacy, we want the war to go on. It's the countries of the global South, overwhelmingly, yeah who say, yes. why is this war just being fueled to go on forever? Why is there no attempt to have any diplomatic outreach? And listen, every party is to blame here. At different points, Russia and Ukraine have uh, both stepped forward towards a peaceful settlement, then stepped back, depending on how uh, the battlefield conditions have changed. But one thing that has been constant throughout is that the United States government and, and the UK, but the United States government is the main one uh, here, um, has not engaged in any diplomacy, and they are key to doing this. And we, as an ally of the United States, if we're really an ally, maybe they should consider what, what we think, and maybe they should consider, you know, if we urge them 
to, to actually step in and talk to the Russians and try and figure something out. You know, that's something that's worth pursuing. But I haven't seen Ardern done that. And it's meaningless to just say, oh, we hope nuclear war doesn't happen. Um, if you're not going to do anything to actually prevent it from happening, do you, do you know what I mean? Not only not doing anything, but actually sending, you know, um, assistance to uh, pour fuel into the fire, right? So uh, New Zealand has been training, um, I don't know, uh, troops over there, sending some equipment. Um, I'm just thinking, like, just imagine the situation of the common Ukrainian person in the middle of this, facing the Russian professional military. I mean, this is really, if, if those of you who consider yourselves on the left and who think that, you know, Ukraine needs to fight this war out, are you really concerned about the safety of the people over there? You're talking about one of the, you know, most powerful militaries in the world Russia has. So peace should be the focus of the left. Uh, talks should be the focus of the left and um, and also the left should pay attention if you are actually consider yourself on the left try to listen to some of the you know anti-imperialist left from the global south let's look at Ivo Morales who talks about um, you know how the, it is U.S. interventionism that has pushed Russia and Ukraine into this confrontation. What are the facts behind such an analysis from a leftist leader in the global south? Please pay it, you know, at least consider it and consider that the Western media can be a source of dis disinformation and propaganda based on its track record, you know, for how long? If I want to go back to 250 years when, you know, uh, the beginning of colonization onwards, the dehumanization of common people in the global south, um, you know, completely um, separating the humanity from these people and just uh, reporting them as figures when they die in other parts of the world. Um, United Western media is a major source of disinformation, and it is one of the active components in manufacturing consent uh, that would justify military intervention in countries globally. And also to talk, to just add another point to Iran, of course, you know, there are organic uh, protests happening um, in Iran, but we must always be wary of what um, this narrative can lead to and what it can be used to justify. So just yesterday I saw, uh, you know, United States uh, official, uh, you know, declaring that there will be more sanctions on Iran. Now, now so if we are interested in the women's rights of, uh, of women in Iran, uh, we must remember that U.S. interventionism has been the worst thing to happen to the women in Iran. And I'm, I'm mentioning that in, you know, in multiple dimensions. Of course, if you look at the history of Iran that led to the Islamic revolution in 1979, United States has, an, had, had, has had a very nefarious impact on the situation over there and on the rise of the right wing over there as well. So um, conservative elements of society, how did they come to power? Um, you, know, you can look into the history of that if you're interested. Uh, to see what United States uh, role has been. But after that, what's going on right now? The number of sanctions that are on Iran, this includes on even medical supplies. Women are among, you know, the first who will be impacted by these sanctions, by United States sanctions. Sanctions are economic warfare. You know, they're not direct warfare, but they will impact the lives of the poor and the working class the most. And among them, women will suffer a great deal. So if we are, uh, you know, standing 
in solidarity with the women in Iran, we must protest against uh, the illegal economic sanctions placed on Iran by the United States. So again, a question of imperialism and also thinking about why is it that United States and other players in the region, for including Saudi Arabia and Israel, are so anti-Iran. Um, Iran is one of the remaining countries that openly supports the Palestinian cause uh, in the region. So it, we, we, we must look at what is the context in which United States is interested in crushing Iran and manufacturing consent to do so. I mean, it's not going to be easy for them to directly attack Iran like they did in Iraq, uh, because Iran is a much more robust power. But yeah, it's interesting to look at these various aspects of the conflict in the Middle East and the situation uh, in Iran and in the surrounding areas. I was just going to quickly say, um, back to Ukraine, I suppose, that there's been some conversation about expelling the Russian ambassador in New Zealand um, that Jacinda Ardern so far seems to have no interest in doing that. But also, as far as we can see, at least isn't really talking to the ambassador so you know use what you've got I suppose um but also she did concerningly say that she thought that more sanctions on Russia would be a better uh treatment to the solution than speaking than uh expelling the ambassador which you know we haven't seen any sign of more sanctions yet but that's uh, possibly a concerning indication of things to come well yeah I mean sanctions have not worked I mean they didn't they didn't deter the invasion uh they, they definitely have had a, a negative impact on Russia's economy, but uh, so far they've actually weathered them pretty pretty well. And it's, I mean, it's now blowing back in Europe is the irony. Um, it's it's uh, I mean, I think basically what's happening now is the war is kind of going into a into a, a, a position of attrition where um, each side is kind of hoping for political unrest in in the other side to to basically um, end involvement. You know. Uh, Russia's obviously got all these protests against its mobilization. We'll see what happens there. But the thing is, uh, Europe has been gripped by some pretty pretty uh, gnarly political instability uh, ever since these sanctions blew back. You know, you had a, a government in Italy collapse. You had a massive protest in Prague. You have um, uh, the Hungarian far-right president. He's been under pressure from protests. Uh, you had a Sweden? recent... Uh, yes, yep, there, yeah. And, and Moldova as well, a massive protest there. So, you know, there's a lot of... Um, I, you know, it's unfortunate to say, but this may be uh, the best outcome is that is that over the winter, it, it, the whole thing just becomes intolerable for everyone. And finally, it forces someone to, to you know, make a make peace, uh, basically. Um, you know, the other, <laughs> the other option is for uh, a nuke to be used and for uh, all manner of horror to be unleashed. Oh, Let's no. hope that doesn't happen. Uh, I just wanted to talk, just add one more point. So I'm, I'm addressing those who consider themselves on the left who think that a war needs to go on <laughs> just think about who is benefiting from this war why is it that the united states and the uk are interested in this war continuing rather than in negotiations um, and also bringing back to that historical materialist analysis of you know what is the driving force of the united states foreign policy it's the profits of the military industrial complex and you can see that billions of dollars of united states taxpayer money is being transferred to the you know accounts of um, of defense contractors who are raking in 
such a big profit with the continuation of this war. So we are all losing. The common people in Europe are losing. In, in Ukraine, they're in harm's way. In Russia, they're being you know, mobilized. So common people everywhere are losing. Who, who is it that's winning? It's the defense contractors and the military industrial complex who are raking profits from the continuation of war. And even the threat of you know, uh, greater escalation leads to uh, uh, greater profits for them. So um, we need to move away from this system that is based on corporate profits and how these corporate interests can lobby undemocratically in our governments uh, for the continuation of a war that harms all of us. Yeah, very, very depressing stuff. But, you know, uh, if you if you agree with what we're talking about, uh, you could do worse than, you know, get in touch with your local MP, uh, get in touch with, you know, the, the prime minister's office, let them know that you want New Zealand to take a more active role uh, in in uh, urging uh, the United States to you know negotiate and, and try and end this war. Um, in the meantime, you know, hug a loved one, you know, call your mom. Uh, eat a eat a delicious dessert that you haven't had for a while. You know, uh, think about what's important, and you know, very bleak stuff. But you know, I think uh, hopefully we will we will muddle through it as humanity has often done, and uh, and we'll see what happens meanwhile in the uh, New Zealand political landscape uh, in the next week when we join you guys. So uh, I want to thank my my co-hosts for a really interesting discussion, and I want to thank you guys for listening as well. Um, and of course, as always, you know, share our stuff, subscribe like it give us some money give some money to some uh you know striking uh uh tu members and and, and other workers uh uh you know however much you can spare um and this is just this is another another episode one of 200 We're gonna catch you guys next week with, with all manner of crazy shenanigans in, in new zealand politics uh, stay safe everybody Keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation Hey, nationalism